we're joking and laughing and just having a good time out there. And we certainly had, there were some points in the race where the team didn't get along a hundred percent, but you know, after that happened, we resolved the conflict, um, you know, in the moment and, um, you know, during the race and after the race, we're all great friends. Welcome to the Dark Zone, an event racing podcast. This is your host, Brian Gatens. In event racing lingo, a dark zone is a time when due to darkness or safety, teams are paused on the course before continuing with the race. During that time, stories are exchanged, friendships are kindled, spirits are restored, and teams have a chance to prepare for the next challenge. We hope that you make good use of this dark zone. We're glad that you're here. Today's guest is Jesse Spangler. Jesse's a very successful racer, both as a solo and as a teammate. He's a treasure trove of information, has raced both domestically and internationally, particularly Eco Challenge Fiji. Uh, sit back and enjoy this episode as Jesse does a great job talking about his training and his nutrition and his in-race strategy. Thank you, Jesse, for coming on board. As we enter the end of the race season here in the Northern Hemisphere, everyone is encouraged to get a good fall and winter training schedule in. We're turning our attention to our sponsorship for the 2023 season of the Dark Zone. If you're interested in coming aboard as a sponsor, please let me know. Reach out to Brian at ardarkzone.com. Special attention is paid to aspiring race directors and those coming in from underrepresented communities. We want you involved in the dark zone. We want you involved in adventure racing. Please reach out to me and let's talk further. Sit back and relax and enjoy this episode of the dark zone. Uh, today we are joined by Jesse Spangler. Um, relatively new to adventure racing in his description, starting in 2015. Jesse um, has arrived on the AR scene with a splash, very well regarded by his, his teammates and by his fellow racers. We are grateful to have Jesse join us on today's episode of The Dark Zone. Um, Jesse, let's dive right into it. Um, you've had some strong success in an adventure racer, um, both as a solo and as part of a team. And we'll get into your, your, your various awards and your times on the podium. I always like to start with your origin story. Um, how did you get into this? What was your athletic background like as a child? Tell us a bit about yourself. First off, Brian, thank you for this podcast. I've listened to almost every episode uh, except for one and uh, appreciate what you're doing. Um, but my background, um, uh, like you said, I got an adventure racing in 2015. I messaged a buddy from high school and I saw this race on the internet. It was an adventure enablers rev three event in Georgia. I think it was the wildwood Epic. Um, we just kind of randomly signed up for it and weren't really sure what we we're getting into. I went and bought a hardtail mountain bike at the bike shop. I said, I'm doing an adventure race. Give me what I need. Um, rode it for a few months and just got destroyed at the race. Um, we were biking on this trail and by the end of the race, the last two or three hours, I couldn't sit on the bike seat. Um, and my teammate was, he was a much more experienced biker than me. Um, he's like, he was being a really good sport waiting for me, but I was just having a moment at 2 a.m. trying to get back to the finish. Um, legs cramping up, just butt hurt so bad. Um, and, and I fell in love with the sport then. Um, <laughs> well, how, that, long, I, how long was that race? Was that it? Was it a 12 hour? 24 hour. 24 hour. So your yeah. first race was a 24 hour race. Yeah. Thank I, you. Okay. Not an uncommon thing in the dark zone is for adventure racers to dive right into the deep end. So 24 hour race, two o'clock in the morning, your undercarriage is falling apart. And you said that you loved it right away. In, in that moment, I don't, I don't know if I loved it. <laughs> uh, you know, but finding those little orange flags in the woods was the most addicting part for me. And there were some, just 
we made some great memories struggling to find the points that day. Um, there, I remember, I'll never forget, there was a point that was underneath, it was right after a dam and we had to go underneath a little wooden platform while the what the water's like rushing. Um, it just, it was a great memory. But before that, I, I'd, I'd grown up running and playing some team sports in high school. I was fortunate to go to a smaller high school and I could do football, wrestling and track um, and do all those every year. Uh, so I had a, a good athletic base, um, but didn't do much in college or, or medical school. And, and again, just started biking in 2015 with some mountain biking. Did you come into the sport when 2015 came around? Um, and this is a sometimes this is a very common entry to the sport. Had you checked off a lot of life goals at that point? You, you mentioned medical school and college and all of that. There are adventure racers who find that they have some time to at their disposal and it is hard to try something new. And to your point, you had a bit of a of a sports background. So you're used to movement based activities. You're used to competition. Did you find that the initial attraction to adventure racing was that it was new to you and you had the time and capacity to do it? Like, did you know you'd love it as much as you did? Or did you just you know, dip your toe in the water? I had no idea. It was some random thing I'd found on the internet and it just looked like a cool challenge. You know, I, I haven't signed up for obstacle races or, or, or other similar events like that. This was just kind of a, it was supposed to be a one-time thing. Um, and I'd certainly already established a career and um, I was married at the, you know, I, I'm, I, I'd already married my wife. Um, I, 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 yeah, I had time. Exactly. I was finishing up uh, my medical training at that time. And and as a result, you, you, you know, you discover something on the internet, you dip your toe in the water, you try it out. And it sounds like right away from that very first race that you were hooked, that's that there was a combination of factors took place, the physical challenge, finding the orange flags. Talk about navigation a little bit. Had you done navigation previously or did you have to learn all that on the fly? I just learned it. There's a, a local orienteering club here in uh, Richmond, Virginia, the Central Virginia Orienteering Club. So I went to at least one of those events before the race. And that's where I kind of tune up my navigation around here, unless I'm going out with a map on my own. Gotcha. And, and how, and how that, well did you take the navigation? Um, the guy I was with raced with uh he was in he was previously in the military so he would had some navigation experience with that and we worked together um we made lots of mistakes i remember my first parallel navigation error going searching in the wrong re-entrant for an hour um learning the hard way how easy those are to make and i still make those today so let me ask you now because you're you're an expert navigator now right and so over the seven years you've been doing this you just used a term there, you know, parallel and reentrant. For the for the newer person who's listening to this podcast, can you give a definition for that? Like, what was the mistake that you made that you had to learn from? When I think of a parallel navigation error, maybe I'm looking for a reentrant that runs east west, um, and you you're going in a reentrant or sort of in a valley or a creek um, where you it's running east west, and you're looking along this creek. Well, maybe parallel to that on the south side is another creek running east and west and it will look exactly the same if you look all around you it's going to look the same on the map as that other creek does that's maybe uh, a kilometer to the south or usually not that far maybe like 300 meters south just over a hill um so you it's really hard to tell from a map and, and the terrain where you are because it looks very similar to the other place the only way you know is if you paid attention the entire time um to your map and the, the surroundings and, and thanks for that explanation, right? Because as 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 Eric Caravalla says of pack rafting adventures, adventure race navigation is not about error avoidance, but about error correction. 
So even from your very first race, you discovered super how easy it was and how super easy it was to step into the wrong mansion at the wrong time. And once you clean that, you then know you had to go to the next one to keep searching there. Um, oh, yeah. And so it was good that you you got that crash course in navigation. And it's good for the listener to hear the fact that as successful as you are now, your first race was very, very challenging for you. You remember where you finished in the standings? Ooh, very middle. Very but, middle? Okay. Very middle, if not lower middle. Um, but, how, but how much did that even matter? Oh, it didn't matter at all. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It was, it was the experience. And there were some local Richmond racers. Um, who I got hooked up with after that. They're the the Richmond Raging Burritos. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And they let me race with them um, just the next year in 2016. And I learned a lot racing with them. And they were nice enough to uh, let me do some of the navigation. And I was able to learn from them. They were the 2014 USARA Open Division Champions. Um, uh, so, yeah, they let this new guy do some of the navigation with them. And I'd get them a little lost sometimes. Uh, but I learned a lot doing that. And and that's another thing to bring up there, the fact that because you you could kind of hang with them physically, right? And you when you came, they were more than happy to race alongside you. And then on top of that, they released you the responsibility of putting a map in the hand. And meanwhile, when you were doing that navigation, they were probably looking over your shoulder the entire time, right? If you were going to walk down the wrong valley, they were going to probably tap you on the shoulder and say, Jess, we got to go yep. the other direction. Oh, yeah. But once again, you worked inside, you were inside a framework where you had teammates who wanted you to succeed and who kind of brought you along in the, in the course. You also mentioned the the value of being involved in an orienteering club. Um, and, I, and I bang on that point a lot when I talk about adventure racing, because we're so map and compass based. It helps to be good with a map. Orienteering clubs are tremendous partners to adventure racers, because that's where we get the experience of doing that along the way. Yeah, it's definitely um, different navigation. Yes. You know, it. it you can get much, much more lost in adventure racing. And my speed is much higher in an orienteering event. And if I, I don't know, my, my level of uncertainty is a lot higher orienteering than it is adventure racing um, for multiple reasons. Um, but I'm very fortunate to have that orienteering club around here. And the orienteering maps for the, for the folks who are tuning into that for the first time, they tend to be more highly detailed. They yeah, tend you, to- you kind of, there's this thing called catching features where um, like if you are kind of going and you're not a hundred percent certain where you're at, you can use features on this very detailed map to then tell you where you're at. Um, so if there's a, a big boulder that's labeled and then there's a, a knoll right next to it, you can kind of figure it out on the map that you're in this position instead of somewhere else. Right. Where adventure racing maps tend to be a bit broader. They tend to be larger, larger pieces of land, not as much detail. And as a result, you have to pay more attention to it and you could find yourself in the wrong re-entry or on the wrong mountain. Yeah. And the accuracy of the maps is sometimes much different. In an orienteering map, I usually trust that the map is very accurate. In an adventure racing map, sometimes the base layer is um, not very detailed or there's old roads, old trails. Sometimes it's just a misplaced checkpoint, which is very uncommon in an orienteering event. It does happen sometimes, um, but it's much more likely in an adventure race. Yes. Yep. And, and usually there's bigger pieces of land you're working with inside that time. Yeah. So 2015, you, you, you get clobbered in your first race, you follow the typical, you know, on your way home from the race, you're looking for your next one, right? You fall in with the raging burritos, very well thought of team in 2016. Um, did you lean on team racing at that time or did you try some solo racing? Uh, I got interested in solo racing. I did a row gain. My first, the first overnight solo event for me was a big step. Um, when you're out there all alone at night 
in the mountains. Um, there's certain fears you have to overcome. So I think the first, the first one I did was uh, Mark Latanzi puts he put on a Get Stoked 24 hour Rogaine, and I don't remember what year I did it, um, but yeah, that, that's kind of when I got hooked on the solar racing because I could go at my own pace, and it was so good for me to learn how to do that on my own, to do all the pace counting myself, to improve the navigation. Um, and it was funny. I, I didn't think I was doing well in the race. Um, I, I I messed up some checkpoints. You know, I had some moments at 2 a.m. where I kind of was running in circles, it felt like. Um, but I just at, at one point in the night, I just said, well, I'm just going to just do the best. I, I'm just going to keep finding checkpoints in the woods until I run out of time because I didn't clear the course. Um, you know, My goal changed from just trying to crush it and win to just going one checkpoint to another and just having fun finding those flags. And I got to the finish line and Mark said I won. And I was just so surprised. Um, but that, that was my first big overnight solo event. And once I, I did that first overnight solo event, it became a lot easier to do them. And I started doing it more because it was just easy. Um, it was easy to plan. It was hard for me to sometimes plan work off ahead of time. Um, so I could sign up at the last minute and then I could go at my own speed and improve. I, I feel like I improved so much faster in some of those solo events just because I could make all the bad decisions I wanted and, and kind of gamble when I wanted to uh, and learn where to do that and where not to do that. Um, it, yeah. And so the, and having that is a, so, so there's a benefit towards solo versus team because we'll talk about your team experience also, but it sounds like what you're saying is, is, the challenges of being a solo racer is the fact that you don't have someone to turn to and say, what do you think? Right. It's, yeah. it's you and the voices in your head. Right. And so two o'clock in the morning, three o'clock in the morning, when you're tired and fatigued, it's all about you. But it sounds like the fact that you had to figure out on your own informed and made you a stronger navigator because you had no one to turn to. And it also gave you the freedom to do things that might have um I'm going to use the word upset, not the right word to use. It might have thrown off the team dynamic. If you decided you wanted to go down into that, that re-entered into that feature, and that cost you 30 minutes of travel time, it cost you the 30 minutes. It didn't cost the team 30 minutes. Yeah, or if, you know, there's a steep down and up where some people might go around, and I'm, and I just know that I can just slide on my butt down the hill and just crawl my way back out of this steep, um, the steep terrain, and I can, you know, shave two minutes off. It's going to be miserable, but I know I can do it. Um, I'm a lot more willing to do that alone uh, gotcha. than to drag somebody with me. Gotcha. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that's and so that's interesting because you eventually you've transitioned into longer and longer events alongside teammates. And so I'm we'll, I'm sure we'll get to that well, experience. I a, what it was like. I did a multi-day event solo. And I don't think I'll ever do that again. That so what was, was that one? Did, Which was that? I did the Shenandoah Tough as a soloist, and it was a nighttime start. Um, and it was the first time I'd really experienced sleep monsters, and I was all alone. Um, and the first time I'd experienced that multi-day fatigue, um, and I was all alone. And uh, it's just a very different experience. I don't know if I'll go through that again. It's nice to have somebody else there to... Um, help make decisions when you're that tired. And so the nighttime start is always challenging because you go through, you live your life the entire day, mm -hmm. either getting to the race course or getting ready. You don't really sleep that much. And then they start the race at nine, 10, 11 o'clock at night. And by the time you realize it, you've, you've been awake for 24 hours, but you're only racing like 10 of them. Yeah. You have, the, a, you have the whole next day. Yeah. Even a 24 hour race, it's a night start. It feels a lot longer than a 24 hour race. Right. How do you do during a race in terms of um, uh, nutrition? 
Are you a, a real food guy? Are you a goo guy? Are you eat whatever's around? It depends on the race. Um, you know, if it's 24 hours or less, I, it doesn't matter. I'll eat whatever. Um, I try to eat as much as I can when I'm on the boat. I have liquid nutrition just because it's so hard to eat when you're paddling, especially as a soloist. If, if you're solo, you just can't stop. You can't keep the boat straight if you're using a hand to eat. So usually I'll just put a bladder there and kind of suck out of the bladder while I'm keeping the boat stable. It's not as powerful of a stroke while you're you know, drinking tailwind from a bladder, um, but I can at least keep the boat straight and keep my momentum moving forward. Um, so it, yeah, sounds like you, it sounds race, like you it put a really big premium on efficiency and speed. Like you mentioned before, like saving two minutes by going up and down a really steep section. You mentioned the bladder as opposed to stopping. It sounds like a large part of your success. And you've had a lot of success. And, and I'm gonna, well, I feel like I have to drag it out of you a little bit, how well you've done. Because I know that you're a humble guy. But you've really maximized speed over anything else. It sounds like you don't slow down a whole lot during the races. Well, every, I think every decision in a race... Uh, for me, just gets more simplified when you change the decision and, and frame it as what can I do here to cross the finish line as fast as possible? Um, so every decision comes down to that before the race and during the race. It's what can get me or my team or me and my team across that finish line as fast as we can. Or what gives us the highest probability of that? Um, and, and that simplifies a lot of decisions before and during the race. So what do you think leads to time suck? What leads to when you start bleeding time? What do you think, what do you think hurts teams? Uh, it depends on the experience of the team. I mean, transitions are the, are the number one, number one thing, even at, even at endless mountains um, uh, where we got second place, our, our transitions were blazing fast at the beginning. I think we had some of the fastest transitions early on. And then if you look at some of the more experienced teams that were there, um, their transitions as the race went on were much faster. That's um, uh, harder to fix. I haven't figured out the, the expedition race transition strategy yet. It's so hard. It takes so much planning beforehand. Um, the bin just got kind of trash, but transitions would be the the first place people lose time. You know, minute to minute in the, in the race, it's route choice. Um, people waste time on their like re strategy refilling water. Like that's something like I always do chest bottles if I need to refill water fast, not open up the pack and take the bladder out and do the bladder thing if it's a fast race. Um, I, I'm quick when I refill water on in a stream. Um, uh, How do you do that with filter? Do you do, are you a iodine tablet guy? Do you use a B-free? Tablets, I just do uh, yeah, chlorine dioxide tablets. Um, that way you're just, you cross a stream, you open up your bottle as you're walking, cross a stream. Well, you get the tablet out first. You want to get the tablet out first if you're solo, and then you open it up, put it in your hand, cross the stream, throw it in, in the uh, bottle, cap back on, and then just you know Keep moving. wait wait the 15 minutes. So it sounds like you've really absorbed the idea. We had a guest on one time that talked about how if it's a 12-hour race, if you waste five minutes an hour, you've gave back an hour of your race time. Yeah. And it's easy to waste five minutes. And so to your point, some teams would stop at the creek, they take off their packs, they take out their bottles, they get out the tablets, yeah. they put them in the water, they have a quick chat, and it's like a seven minutes, 10 minutes even. Mm-hmm. You do that four times during a race, that's 40 minutes you've now given back in race time. And the goal of racing is, for a lot of people, there's different goals for different people, but it sounds like few of the goal is winning, and therefore, it's maximizing that movement over time. Um, eating on the go, moving on the go, constantly everything being pointing towards how can I move further down the course on this? So so what did you learn? So what was your steepest learning curve in the beginning when you 
did that first race in 2015 and 2016, you were with the burritos. What was the biggest thing you had to learn the most about? Was it taking care of your body? Was it navigation? Was it equipment? Like what really was your steepest learning curve? There's definitely been sort of learning plateaus every year or a few years, like things that I can improve on that drastically increase uh, speed during a race. And I'd say early on, it was navigation. It still is navigation, Um, but focusing on on that and not making, slowing down a little bit and making better decisions um, that sort of had the biggest impact. well, that's a good point, a right? Because it's, it's great if you're going fast. It's terrible if you're going fast in the wrong direction. I, yeah. First and couple you're years fast, right? You have, you, have, you have good speed in the woods. I, w- I would just run a lot more miles than other people, but I would, um, yeah, because I would make bad decisions or bad race, bad uh, navigational decisions, run fast. I bet if you looked at my tracks back then, uh, it was a lot of extra miles. Gotcha. And your and your natural ability and speed helped you out in a big way because you could, you could, you could close the gap. Faster if you in the wrong because you're you're a strong you're a strong trail runner I think it's safe to say I think on mountain running off trail I think this is my I was pretty fast so I could make up time doing that what is your uh, what is your non racing training look like um I mean I'm just try to do something every day is is the basics of it um, I've learned sort of throughout the past uh, since I started racing that I just need to do something every day and that'll get me in good enough shape. Usually it's an hour, hour and a half. I usually alternate running one day or bi- and biking the next day. Um, last year, I got a road bike, which made a huge improvement in my biking. Um, that was a big weak point for a long time. And just I would only previously bike when the trails were open. Um, so here in Richmond, you just we try to stay off the trails when they're uh, wet. Um, but since buying a road bike and then a trainer, um, just getting it, getting those four or five hours a weekend on the bike has been huge. Yeah. I, I always use the analogy, the baseball analogy for training. It's not about hitting a home run. It's about hitting a lot of singles. That's yeah. steady consistency over time, trying to get out five days a week, six days a week. And I'll talk very often to people who who struggle with their fitness and they look around and they see people who are more fit than them and they feel bad about themselves. I remind them that not everybody has been fit their entire life. And a lot of folks have to kind of close that gap. And the best way to close the gap is to, besides watching your nutrition, right? It's hard to eat tons of donuts and get fit, but it's also every day eh, trying to get out there. I don't know about that. I don't know. Well, well, uh, I'd safe to say though, I mean, for those of you who are at home right now, Jesse's a pretty lean guy. So he gets away with the donuts versus the output of calories. Is, <laughs> is that a safe point to make? Yeah. I I just think consistency is key and not getting injured. And and early on at adventure racing, when you first get started, I definitely had um, moments where I would just train too much or too hard and then have a a minor injury and have to take time off. And that'd be a huge setback. Gotcha. Because then you give them back time and training. experience that where they start running and they increase their mileage too fast and they get all the different running injuries that all the runners have. Um, And then when I started biking more, then I got all these weird running injuries that only happen to runners that bike too much. Um, so I guess I've just slowed down a little bit and just been more consistent. Gotcha. I mean, I used to like in track, we'd do all these track workouts and then early in adventure racing, I'm like, well, I'll go to the track and do a track workout and do repeat 800 meters, which helps nothing for adventure racing. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a useless. great way to get hurt. Yeah. Yeah. I remember I went through a phase where they opened up a, um, a high intensity gym near my house and they had a really good rate to go and work out. And they were delightful people. And it was this crazy 40 minutes of just throwing things around and getting your heart rate through the roof. I thought to myself, like, 
yeah, this is fun and everything, but like, this is doing nothing for my adventure racing. Like there's no, yeah. the only thing I'm going to get here is an injury. And I, <laughs> I remember that specifically, they were nice people and, you know, but it was time to move on. Um, so as someone who raced solo and had a lot of success solo and done big, long races, and then you've transitioned to more team dynamics, what makes, in your experience, what makes the best teammates? Who are the people that, that work best inside that structure? That also about yourself and with other people, what have you seen? I, I don't know the specific qualities of the people that make the best teammates, but I know that they're people that I just want to hang around um, and enjoy the company of at, you know, especially in a multi-day race, like you just have to enjoy being around them. Um, that's one of the most important things, but you know, you want people that match your, you know, somewhat match your physical ability and, you know, or, or have a similar experience or if they have more experience, that's great. And they can teach you lots of stuff, but um, sort of the most important factor is, are they a good hang? Um, so what, what makes them, so if, if you were to say to somebody, someone said to you, Hey Jesse, I'm doing a race coming up and I really want to make certain I'm a good hang, make certain that I'm, I'm enjoyable to be around. What would you recommend that they focus on? Um, showing up ready to the, ready to race. Um, so that things go as smoothly as they can for that person, not complaining. Um, uh, you know, if, if things are, you know, well, what's it like, what's it like when things get that, challenging that might out get there? down, if, you know, our speed is mismatched, like there, it's not a reason to get down. It's a, it's, it's a challenge and, and there's always going to be somebody who's faster on the team. Some, and especially moment to moment, sometimes, one teammate's fast and then, you know, in a couple hours, another teammate's faster, right. but yeah, people just need to stay, kind of stay positive. And sometimes that balances out across disciplines. Yeah. Like the person who might trek at a certain speed cycles at a certain speed and therefore they kind of balance out that way over a multi-day race. Um, yeah. And I think you're right though. I think that, and Sarah Goldman, who is a, a previous guest on the podcast, who's a, a great coach and just a brilliant adventure racer. She said the most important thing she does as a teammate, she shows up ready to race that her stuff is sorted, that it's not like the gun's going off and they're running around looking for a piece of equipment and they're not ready. Like they clearly, they recognize that once the, once the gun goes, the whole team has to be focused in the right direction. And, in, and they don't want to drag down the rest of the team. And I think that's a big piece of advice for newer racers, especially if you're racing with, with people you've never raced with before, is, is be the person who shows up well-rested, ready to work with their gear in place. Very, very common point of tension among racers is that that disconnect with the person just not ready to go. Yeah, one um, of the I mean, the ways to decrease that tension is with good pre-race communication. But um, even with all the best pre-race communication um, and, and team meetings and e emails and spreadsheets, like it, there's still the personal responsibility that that person has to be honest about how they're going to show up there on race day um, and, and sort, of, sort of what their abilities are uh, when, when they decide to, to be on that team. And if it's a multi-day race, you're going to see pretty much every single personality come out of a person, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. right. You, they, and we've, you and I both have done multi-day races and it's amazing how that dynamic sometimes it, it bonds teams closer together and sometimes teams struggle with that. And you see it in other teams too, right? You see it in the TA where, where everyone's at their bin and they're kind of not talking to each other. They're kind of just like <laughs> kind of moving around each other and just let's get through this as much as we can. Um, Talk us through, uh, if you can remember, a race where it went haywire for you, where things just kind of fell apart and you had to recover. With regards to teamwork or anything? Or just in general. A piece of equipment blows, 
bad navigation, you're exhausted, your nutrition falls apart. It, well, it's I, it's I'm having good a, for someone with your success to talk about where it gets hard. Yeah, I'm having a bias here. Of, you know, my most recent race, um, uh, it was the uh, AR Georgia solo champs in Georgia that just happened last month. And uh, my race kind of fell apart. Um, it was a night start on this um, paddle, the last paddle. Um, I was pushing way too hard uh, on the prior track, trying to catch Jesse Tubb and Tim Buchholz, um, uh, which <laughs> I, I was frustrated. I was very frustrated. There were a couple checkpoints that were missed. They weren't in the right spot. Um, and I confirmed with GPS afterwards, but I was very upset about it. And I was just pushing as hard as I could. I was making such bad decisions. When I got in my boat on the last paddle, um, I had left my pack on and my hatch open in the boat. I, I, I was didn't even think to put those away. And I took off paddling. And I knew kind of knew where they were because I they I crossed them on this last trek, maybe 14 hours into the race. That was a tight race. That was a super yeah, tight race. Yeah, it was race. a tight race um, up until the, when you know, I made a bad decision. Um, but th- this is when... I'm kicking myself with this. Um, it's good to have a, a teammate there. So I, I saw a six kilometer paddle that I could turn into. I, I could skip that and then do a four kilometer run instead, which was mo- a lot on road, um, but it was not clearly not the intended race director's path. Um, so I, I skipped this paddle. I parked the boat and then I took off running into the woods, um, that, you know, and then onto a road just as fast as I could. Um, and I came to a bunch of private property that blocked me off and I couldn't get where I wanted to go. And I made a, a parallel navigation, parallel navigation error. Um, and I got completely lost <laughs> in a, you know, in a race that was pretty close. And if I'd have stayed on my boat, maybe I could have chipped away at Jesse and Tim. Um, but in my mind, I did not have enough race course left to, to, to catch them, to get 30 minutes on them. So I got completely lost and, Usually when you get lost, it's best to like sit down and just think for a second. Um, but I kind of went down the rabbit hole of just do, just keep yeah, running. Just keep moving. Um, right? And, you, and you, I've had you races in the past the where I, movement. you know, you get kind of lost. If you sit down, have a snack, have a drink, you know, just think for a couple minutes instead of doing, um, you can make a, a, a realization about how to improve the situation. Uh, it didn't happen in this race. I got just blown up. I, I finally figured out where I was after an hour long, just I kept kind of going along the shoreline until I saw my boat and then I swam to my boat because I was too tired to to run along a little inlet. Um, and then I just kind of sat there for a couple minutes and I knew I'd lost the race at that point and just, well, how can I recover this as best as possible? But, but it sounds like you had to make that decision. You said you needed, you needed more course, right? You said it was done 30 minutes. I needed more course, but the bad decision was in, in how I handled it pushing too hard at that moment um you know when your heart's beating 190 beats a minute you can't think um right. it was hot it was late in the race at that point i started neglecting you know nutrition hydration just because i thought i needed the time um so i kind of went down that rabbit hole by myself um, right. and if you have a teammate there they can say you know let's just slow down for a second let's just take a look around um that was a bad decision that's where things yeah. went haywire Okay. And it's, and I, I think to, to your point, you fell into the classic trap of movement is self-soothing, right? Cause if I, if I'm, we say to ourselves, if I'm still, I'm not yeah. going anywhere and that's bad. If I'm moving, at least I'm going somewhere, but it's not worth your while to go 
it's yeah. not good to go nowhere fast, right? Which no, that's is a, a great way to put it. Right. It's a, also a great song for the movie Streets of Fire, but that's a different that's oh. a different podcast. Um, but you're right, though, and and you, and you with all your navigational skills and success, you fell into that trap too. And so it's important for people to keep in mind that when it gets kind of haywire like that, you know, it's amazing how a five minute, you know, a Snickers bar and a and, a, and some 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 fluid would have helped you in a big way. Um, oh, yeah. but, but I also think, too, and as I hear you talk about it and, and to sort of, you know, to not that this is a therapy session, but it sounds like you had to make a gutsy decision at that point in the race that you clearly those guys and, and all all credit to Tim and Jesse, who are masters. It sounds like they were further down the course on you and yeah, you had to do I, you, I had, you, had, you had to throw a rock in the pond to try to win the race. Right. Yeah, I would not catch them unless they made a mistake. And I didn't think that both of them were going to make a 30 minute mistake right. at that point. Right, um, right. One of them might have, but I not both of them. Hey, not for nothing. You made you made a gutsy call that went yeah. kind of haywire on you. So <laughs> very good. So now let's so let's but do I the have other not side. Felt that horrible in a race in a long time. Just you know, yeah. like how did this happen? How did I make such a bad decision? How did I get right. in this place? And right. like, you know, when I got back to my boat, I just kind of sat in the water and pulled <laughs> off for a couple minutes, and then it became, you know, just the goal was to just get get as many points as I could for the rest of the race. I wasn't, I knew I wasn't going to win anymore, but I was just going to find more checkpoints. Um, yeah. Were you sitting there wondering about the people at home watching your dot? Thinking uh, like, Oh, what's this guy doing? The, I, I bet they could figure out what I was trying to do. Exactly. Yeah. All right. All right. So, so, so that, that's, that's one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is when it all just sort of clicked for you. Like when did it just, when did you just nail a race? Like everything just like you couldn't have, you were, you were an adventure racing God out there. When did it just go great for you? Um, I've had a couple of good races over the past couple of years, the past, past two years, probably ever since COVID hit and I kind of focused my training a little bit more. Um, had a great six hours at the adventure addicts adrenaline rush earlier this year, me and Hunter Leninger, um, uh, did that one as a two person team and we didn't win the whole race didn't go perfect. Rootstock took an amazing portage, uh, on that race. I remember um, that gutsy call. Yeah. And after, after you look at it, you look at it on the map, you're like, oh, it's great there. But like there, there were some great teams there that didn't see that portage. Um, so I didn't feel quite as bad, but there was this nighttime trek section that was one of my favorite trek sections um, recently where we just nailed the nav. We went fast and we were putting time on rootstock. Who we, we just couldn't catch. They, they had too much time on us in the portage and nobody behind us. Um, just the nav, the nav decisions were good. The company was good. It was a great moonlight paddle right before that. Um, just great nav decisions made a great uh, made a great race. And once again, like that's that's adventure racing, right? Sometimes yeah. it goes great, sometimes it falls apart, and sometimes it's that way from race to race to race. Like nobody is consistently. I mean, unless you're Nathan Fave. And uh, on the, no one's consistently. They crush every single race. Sometimes folks have races that go up and that they go down. And I, it was although we got second. You know, I, I see the strategic. Um, uh, error that we made and not portaging just you know the rest of the race went re mostly really well um, and there's been some other races where I get first and I didn't have nearly as good of a race um, and, and made way more errors but just it turned out that I I could make up for it you and I were together we were uh, racing the Shenandoah Epic and you came down 
the top of the you 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 and uh, and R- Richard Sparks blew right by us on the downhill in Beach Gap, um, and we all took off immediately after you because we figured you were going in the right place. And we, you know, saw you throw your bikes down, and we ran into the woods right behind you. So good job <laughs> helping us out. So so thank you for that. I, I appreciate that. That, that race went pretty well, but we had some heat and water issues. Um, we we started off really fast, and that was the strategy uh, to just start fast and get way ahead of, ahead of everybody. Um, but then uh, we lost some water bottles and ran out of water on this big monster truck section. And it was the first big hot day of the year for the yep. Shenandoah Epic this year. Uh, so that made the race a little tough. And the nav wasn't quite as clean um, uh, as I wanted to be to call it, you know, a, a great race. Yeah, that stage four was challenging. Which a lot of teams but... even touched that stage four. It sounds like you did the whole thing. The big, long trek, you guys were able to do all of it. A lot of teams yeah. didn't even get to it because of the heat was just too much. <laughs> we... Um, Richard, um, he had he had a tough time on that. Well, he did great on that section, but he lost his trekking shoes on the bike prior to that. So he did that whole monster trek in his hard, slippery bike shoes. And there was a lot of rock scrambling on that. Um, so that that was tough. In terms of a, a equipment when you're out there, you do a lot of it sounds like you do a lot of point to point navigation. What do you wear in your leg? Do you wear bash guards at all? Or do you just go um, Yeah, I, I almost always keep the legs covered up. At that solo champs last month, it was in Georgia in August. So <laughs> I just went with like tall socks, but my legs were torn up. Cause in in the epic, I remember I didn't have something on my legs and I just it just made me make some bad bad decisions. Like I would try to take away a round instead of just bashing through, right. um, which would have been a lot faster. But, you know, my brain knew to just try to avoid all this nasty brush and go around. And it was way slower than it could have been had I just gone through the brush. Maybe I just yeah. need to toughen up and just deal with my legs. But like, sometimes it just hurts. And then you move so slow. Yeah. And then you're banged up. I think I, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the Moxie gear of the bash guards that they sell the Australian company. Yeah. Um, I've got the Moxie. Um, I, I often use the Moxie shin guards, but as far as like, and, and I, for some reason I, did, I didn't have them on then. Cause again, it was really hot out. Um, so I think we're just, didn't want to put them back on. And in fact, at the C2C earlier this year, I was taking them on and off um, on some of the sections, like on the on one of the last bikes and even on the trek. I would just it was worth the time for me to just kind of run ahead a little bit and put them back on um, and then bash through the go through the woods with the team because um, I could be cooler on the uh, when I had them off. So one of the bigger races you did was you did uh, Eco Challenge Fiji. Yep. Yeah, uh, you team U.S. military. It was you and uh, yeah, was, Jesse uh, Jesse Tubb, right? The last you. minute edition. I our t- my original team uh, didn't get accepted, and I kind of just made that time uh, as a whole in my work schedule, knowing that maybe somebody's going to need a teammate last maybe, minute. Maybe just maybe you get the yeah, call. Maybe. And then, so <laughs> I you're in the bullpen. You're warming up. Yep. Give me a call. So I raced uh, the Massanut Massacre race against. Um, one of the teams there was Jesse Tubb and Caitlin Thorne. And we were kind of back and forth during part of the race. And there was a mix up with the awards afterwards. Um, and so I had to message Jesse Tubb and say, Hey, you know, I think I got your award because they finished, um, I think one spot higher than me. And it was a gift card. And I was like, you know, we should probably exchange these. And then that kind of got a conversation started um, where I got to know Jesse a little bit more. And then he's like, Hey, we need somebody for our team. What do you think? And so two months before the race, I'm on the team. That's uh, awesome. And, and, it and, was, and it was all because a mistake was made. It was all because of a mistake in the awards. Like if that mistake wasn't made, I doubt I would have 
had the opportunity to go to Eco Challenge. It's the universe. Years. You were supposed to be there. It was the greatest, it was the greatest race <laughs> experience ever. Um, so, 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 so you went from uh, you went from not having a team to stay, being ready. And I think you know, I always like talking about it. One thing about adventure racing is in training, people should always try to just be ready. Yeah. Right? You you get a phone call. You have a free weekend, and you get a phone call on a Thursday night. Someone says, "Hey." I got a spot here. You want in? Yes. You don't have to say that. You don't, you don't have to say, oh, you know, I'm out of, no, I'm in shape. I'm ready to go. Give me an hour to get my gear together. And where are we starting? So always try to stay ready. And you stayed ready for, for Eco Challenge. So walk us through that. You team, team US military. Yep. Right. Uh, uh, I, I, you, Jesse me, Tubb. Caitlin Thorne, Jesse okay. Tubb, and Josh Forrester okay. um, had, a, had a blast in Fiji. Um, we, um, there was a ton of paddling in that our, our boat ran into another boat on the first stage. Like, well, another boat ran into our boat and put a hole in it. And then, so we were going out onto the ocean with a leaky boat and we were able to patch it up with a little piece of plywood. Well, some rickety old rotten board <laughs> and some old nails that uh, we got some from folks on the side of the river. Um, so we started off in last place. And then, so every time we'd pass a team, Josh Forrester, who's super competitive, would like shout out our current position. So it was so fun to like go all the way from the back and just march your way up this whole race. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. It, while we're taking on water in the boat, like having to like, we're on the, ocean, the boat in the ocean in, in a 24 hour paddle. Like this first stage is like 24 hours basically of paddling on the ocean. Cause there's no wind for the sail. Right. Um, and every time we pass them, you know, we made our way up to, I think, 20th or 22nd place at one point um, and then ended up, I think, 29th place. Um, we just had a great time. You know, there were some super hard parts. We had to carry our mud. There, if, you, if you've seen the show, I'm sure you've seen the show. Sure, There's sure. a stage where you're carrying your bikes through the mud and they really under they don't really show the whole story. We're carrying those bikes through thick, nasty mud for like 10 Yeah, the, the peanut hours. butter mud. Yeah, um, it was gross yeah. uh, but we were joking and laughing and just having a good time out there and we certainly had there were some points in the race where the team didn't get along 100 percent. but you know after that happened we resolved the conflict um you know in the moment and um you know during the race and after the race we're all great friends one piece of feedback I've heard from that race that people talk about is that for as much as it was a production and you had Bear Grylls jumping out of helicopters and all that sort of stuff, people who did it said it was a real race. Like it was, this was not a Hollywood, but this was a full on, you're going for it the entire time. Is that yes. your experience? Yes. The, the the sleep deprivation was insane. In my longest race before that was, was the Shenandoah Tough, which was two and a half, three days. So this being 10, 11 days, I think we finished one day before the, maybe on day 10. Right. Um, it was, yes, it was an immersive real race. Um, with, and you were just in that environment for real, 10 days. real dangers out there. You know, they had safety crews there and there was TV crews out there. But, you know, we climbed, I think it's Vua Falls. Mm-hmm. I don't remember the name of it. You know, at night on no sleep. Um, well, we, we've gotten some sleep before, but it felt like no sleep. And I remember one of my teammates hooking into his climbing equipment. And, he, you know, I'm like, that's hooked up wrong, man. Like, yeah. They were just so sleep deprived. And then I go over there. I'm like, you know, you almost started an ascent up, 
you know, I don't know if it was a thousand feet is it super tall waterfall right. um, with the stuff hooked up wrong. Like that could have been bad. And then at one point, uh, my rope, I'm not an experienced climber. I took climbing lessons just for this race. My rope got caught up in some brush um, on an overhang. I think it kind of slipped to the side of where it was supposed to be. Um, for those who don't know, Nico, we use these little ascender devices. Mm-hmm. It makes it so you, I'm not a climber, but I can climb using these ascender devices. They cinch up your left hand, right hand, and you kind of use your feet to kind of work your way up these ropes. And you go from one rope to another, and you have a safety rope there. Um, but at this one point, and, and the safety rope can fall, you know, 20, 30 feet, if not more, before it catches the um, carabiner um, at the right. bottom. So if you yeah. do have to use that safety rope, that is not going to be good. Yeah, you're going to fall. You're going to, I mean, you're not going to die, but you're going to get hurt. You're going to get hurt. Yeah. At one point, I just, I couldn't get above this overhang. And while I'm reaching out, my ascenders come off um, because I, I'm, I kind of twist them in a weird way. Um, and so I'm like grabbing onto an actual rope. Like I'm on a rope over an overhang. Like in the middle of the night in Fiji, like I don't know what to do, how to get over this. Like, <laughs> is this really happening right now? About this, right. like that was, it was a great experience. <laughs> right, right, and you, you know, you, yeah, exactly. And you say it was great. People at home are kind of like, okay, do whatever you say. But that's part of the deal, right? We, we, yeah. in exchange for these experiences, we, we, we agree that from time to time, the 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 intensity level is going to get higher, right? And that's what. That's just the deal. That's what we agree to do. And you mentioned it was an immersive, you know, 10, 11 day experience. Did you find, and, and, and this may be a leading question, but did you find, I've heard and I've experienced myself that once you pass day three of a race, getting over that third night really kind of sets the tone for the rest of the race. That if you make it through that, that much sleep deprivation, you can pretty much hang in there for the rest of the experience. I've only done four expedition races. Um, so, uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, I, I don't know. Well, here's a question like, for you. When did it get less hard at one point in the race? It's hard the entire time. When did it get less hard? Um, <laughs> it became less hard when they had to take us, uh, they had to stop us on the course because of weather. And then we just had to stop and sleep. But before that, we were just pushing, you know, this pushing to go as fast as we could and, and minimizing sleep. So it was just kind of the turn of this. <laughs> very grueling um process and gotcha did you think you do you think you undersold the, the importance of sleep did you think you you valued speed over sleep and that kind of bit you a little bit yeah we definitely made the mistake at some point in the middle of the race to just um keep pushing and not stop and sleep yeah yeah we saw that with team uh team eastwind out in expedition oregon this year they had a great race and uh, they'll actually be down at worlds um, they slept a lot and they had a really, really strong finishing. And there uh, feels like there's this trend in sleep strategy that people are actually are sleeping more with the idea being that if, if I sleep more, I get to move faster. That it's not about running myself into the ground and then crawling along and then making all the narrative errors, making all those mistakes that come along with being sleep deprived. Well, if you look at the, uh, the GPS tracks of the top teams in the world, it does seem like that's the trend. Yeah. Yeah, so that's a, and that's a, and that's a bit of a change. That's interesting. Is the herd is kind of moving in that direction? We had a, a situation. We recently raced uh, Scotland and I Terror, and we took a sleep, and it was supposed to be three hours, and it was like four and change. We overslept, and while it, it kind of bugged us out to wake up and having overslept and feeling like we were behind, later on we felt as if that extra sleep, that extra ninety minutes, served us well. That that was yeah, a really good thing for us. Endless mountains, you know. <laughs> The race took almost a full five days, uh, and we had a conservative sleep, sleep strategy early. 
Um, and that was the plan going in and it, it paid off. We, we came back from uh, way behind and, and closed the gap on, I think we were just a little over three hours behind bend at the finish. Yeah. Um, yeah. When I think we were 13 hours behind um, when we were as far back as possible. It, yeah. It's, you know, it's funny. You, you, your team had a heck of a race that race. It was Tim and a, a Tim Buckholes, Anna Kirsty, Richard Sparks, and you. And I was present for that, and I was following the trackers. And um, not that you ran out of course, but clearly you, you were beginning to close on bend later in the race. You guys appear to be getting stronger during the race. Um, yeah, and so, so kudos to you for that. Yeah, when I look at the splits for that race, um, on Endless Mountains, like breaks up each leg and gives you the splits for each leg. And it's just frustrating to look at it because it's like there's one leg, there's one monster trek leg, and we forgot to use the supplemental map yeah. for it, um, which was all of our faults. Um, and, and we were all kicking ourselves afterwards. And we, we, we must have been 10 hours, eight hours, probably eight. We lost eight hours to, I think, bend and rootstock on for not having that map and um we were on that leg and we we just kept not finding we kept you know making errors and we'd look at the map and like well this makes sense what we're doing why why can't we find the spots how are how would these other teams find these points well they had the map that helped out right 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 and yeah, so, the conservative I, sleep strategy there really really paid off and we pushed it at the very end because we were we took some some good sleeps earlier as a as famous adventure racer pete spagnoli says one mistake can follow you around for a while oh yeah right and that and that put you a bit a bit behind and something as simple as looking at an extra map can can just follow you um and so yeah and so that was so so you've clearly you've had a chance to do some some pretty big races and pretty pretty uh pretty strong events what are you looking at down the road you know it's it's now september of 2022 you're coming off solo race solo nationals we're going into the northern hemisphere into the fall into the winter what does the future look like to you for jesse um i told myself i'd take a little break um that never seems to work out um I, i'd kind of been training solid since the beginning of covid um so i don't want to do anything big for a while uh, i have there's a triathlon in the area called the king of the james um that's um mountain biking trail running and whitewater kayaking on class four rapids um okay. that i i've done the past few years and i need to go back this year and defend my title um so that's that's a goal race and then in december um i might do well very likely going to do the uh that a1 uh, world cup uh championship race in new zealand no this no. is uh Eric is putting it on and oh open. very nice Oak Mountain State Park in Alabama. I've never been there. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And are you racing solo with the team? Uh, team. Who are you so going to be with? Team. It'll be me and Jesse Tubb and Lisa Randall. Nice. Nice three per Excellent. Very good. And so, and so your break is a, is a smidge, right? It's a smidge. Yeah. Right. Right. It's not a, it's not uh, a full next blown. Fall, um, in August, actually next summer. Um, I'm really looking forward to the Faroe Islands, the, the Nordic Islands adventure race. Yes. Um, yep. so for that one, uh, yeah, it looks like some of the best teams in the world will be there. Who's um, your team? So it'll be nice to race race against them. Yeah, uh, Rib Mountain Racing. Me, Tim, Anna, and then uh, I don't know if our fourth is fully committed yet, so I'm going to hold off on saying his name. But exactly. it should be a it should be a fast team. Yes, uh, a team Dark Zone podcast will be making an appearance. Yeah. Yes, we're going to be you, there for that. You too. see the start list? I did. There's there's like seven of the top twenty five teams in the world are going to be there. Like the top two teams currently ranked 
in the yeah. AWS are going to be there. Yeah, it's it's funny, you know. You so you, so you you bring that up, right? And and clearly, how can you turn down that race? Right, you got to go to Faro. It's going to be a, a, a once in a lifetime experience. The ropes, the pack rafting, the terrain, the wind, uh, and then you see that start list, and you kind of yeah. like have to sit down and be like, oh, okay. Yeah, the um, only race I've done with you know a, a team list like that was was Fiji, um, and you know that was my first real big team race, and you know me and. Uh, I was with Tim and Anna for uh, C2C and Endless. So this would be our third expedition race together, unless we do another one before that. Um, so I want to see what we can do. Uh, you know, I just want to see where we're at compared to those teams. Well, I was on the record prior to Endless Mountain saying that you were one of my favorites of the podium. I was clearly on there. I saw that team and I saw the, I, I know your experience and, and and who you were with. And I was like, they're going to do really well. And so that kind of borne that out that you finished up on the podium. And I do agree. Um, that that start list for Pharaoh is going to be really intense. Um, it's one of these things where like, you know, you <sighs> motivation for training, right? Right, Jess, you think about it. Like what gets us, what gets us training every single day for the most part? What gets us out there racing? Yes, it's the enjoyment of the experience, feeling good about yourself and feeling good about being fit. But it's also the fact that there's this big, hairy, scary, audacious race that's just waiting for you. And you know that your experience in that race is directly proportional to your preparation. Yeah. Right. And so it's just getting you out the door as often as possible, getting trained and focusing on that as being the experience. Right. It's not just it's not just, you know, what the scale says or it's not just what, you know, what your how your clothes fit on you. It's what you're actually going to be able to accomplish with the fitness that you have. Um, And I do agree with you. I think that and it's one of the great things about adventure racing is towing the line alongside the best teams in the world. Yeah. And. You know, and let's be honest, I'll speak for a Team Dark Zone podcast. I'll let I'll let your team make decision itself. Um, it's going to be really, really good to see them at the start line. And then we'll see where we cross paths during the race, but it very well may be at the finish line, <laughs> you know. But between here and there, it's racing, right? Yeah. And it's it's five days of going after, getting out there and going after it. Um, and it's a, it's a great sport for that, right? It's a great sport just to see what's there. Um, yeah. So you got, so Farrow appears to be the big, the big thing on the horizon for you. Yep. I'll see what I can fit in next year, but that's sort of the big thing. Um, yeah. We'll see where we stand. Right. And I'd love to do, there's so many more expedition races now in, in North America. Right. And I have to pick and choose what I want to do. I mean, I'd love to do endless again. It's just hard to schedule two expedition yeah. races that close for me. Yeah, that's the challenge. I can, I'll be, I'll be in Endless Mountains in a support role like I was this year. Um, Thank you for helping put on that race. That yeah, it, it was great. It was great. I, I, I tell Brent Abbey that I'm the world's, I'm the world's most overqualified intern. Um, and yeah, I have a great time doing it. If you make it rain a little bit more next time, that'll help yeah. out the back wrap stage. Yeah, it was a, it was that a canoeing little... at night was wild. Yeah. So we, I mean, we're canoeing at night in fall. Like you can't see anything because it's right. foggy and it's nighttime paddling and there's mist and it's super humid out. Um, and it's two people on a boat just paddling as hard as they can. And there's rocks everywhere. And so you just nail a rock at full speed in a river, hoping you don't go over. <laughs> we thought you'd have a bit more water. You know, for, for the folks listening at home, Endless Mountains was a was a Rootstock Racing's first five day race, huge success, great great race, went really really well. I was fortunate to get to play a role in helping to organize it, um, and I'm returning in that same role going into the 2023 edition. Um, a very bony pack raft to start the race. It was just it was what it was, right? And yeah. it was it was I was part of the team that agreed to to put you guys out there, so I apologize for that. Um, and then that final. It was a 60 mile paddle with two orienteering sections in yeah. between. 
And it was just, it was a big, long, great race. Um, there were some rapids in there too. Like they weren't big rapids, right. but at night when you can't see, it right. becomes bigger. And you hear them a mile away. Exactly. Yeah. No, you're right. And it was a good experience. And it, it sounds like for you, it sounds like all these experiences add up. Um, and you really, and I, I like, I like your odds in Pharaoh. I think that you're going to, you're going to continue to put that together. Um, is it now we have nationals this week and I, you, you teased this in the beginning of the, of the podcast and I should answer it for the listener. You said you've listened to every single podcast, but one, what was the one that you've not listened to? I would not listen to the podcast with uh, one of the race directors for nationals because somebody said it, I think it was, Shane Hagerman is like, so we said, you got to listen to it. This course sounds awesome. And I just couldn't because I knew if I listened to that podcast that I would somehow find a way to change my schedule and go there. Um, I just didn't want to tempt myself with that. And that was, but, and it yeah, was Yishai Horowitz. He did a great job one. describing I, it. I yeah, you're, you're a super listener. Thank you for being, we'll, we'll get the sticker in the mail to you. So thanks for doing that. Um, yeah, that was, and and it's national and we have worlds too. And so we're very fortunate that it, it appears that the, the sport is continuing to grow over time. Um, and as we close up our final thoughts here, you've done a lot of races. You're a successful racer. You, you've raced around the world, a lot of different events. What are you sort of looking down the road a little bit for adventure racing and, and the sport itself? What are you seeing in terms of trends? What are you seeing in terms of the things that we should be happy about and things that maybe we should be concerned about in the sport? I love that there's more racing. Um, I'm very fortunate I, living in Virginia that there are just more races than I can possibly do, um, which has been a change just over the past, I don't know, three or four years. Um, uh, that, that's a huge plus. Um and then you go the, the tracking. Um, I know my family loves uh, the Epic this year. They had tracking and comment commentary. Yep. So they had people like doing live updates yep. for what, how to interpret the tracking, which really yep. helped the fans. That was, yeah, it was, uh, Glenn um, Gibson did a great job with that. Glenn and I yeah, can't remember who did it with. My wife doesn't know what's going on, but I got yep. home from that race and uh, she actually could, it, she knew the story. Yeah, I, I think that's home. a big trend we're going to see in, in races now is that there's going to be a combination of the tracking is spot on, right? Thank you, Mark and Margo Harris for, you know, enable tracking combined with people sitting at home following the tracking, offering real-time commentary. We saw it in Endless Mountains too. Yeah. Um, and I'm curious to see if we get that. Nationals is coming up and it's a bit of a plan for that. Um, and hopefully they keep that going because you're really giving the, the person at home a, an immersive experience. I, I think, um, I don't know what to make of, you know, having you know, more than one national championship. I think that needs to be figured out. I don't know the answer. Um, I understand what A1's doing. Um, uh, I understand what USAR is doing. Um, uh, some races seem to have, uh, be improving their maps. Uh, you know, as a navigator, good maps are um, uh, sometimes a luxury. Um, uh, I know I've done a couple of races where Latanzi's done the maps for other um uh, companies like uh, Adventure Addicts used his maps for that adrenaline rush that I really enjoyed earlier this year. Mm -hmm. um, but some of the other race companies haven't kind of caught on board with that yet. Um, so that's uh, an area for improvement. Uh, yeah, for I agree. I think if, if you're out there listening, if you're looking for a good map maker, Mark Latanzi is the, right now is the best in the business, in my opinion. I mean, yeah, he puts I mean, amazing see, maps together. You know, you're not a... Uh, you know, a 20 mile trek with this big map area and it's all mapped well. And it's not an orienteering course. You know, nobody's made an orienteering map, but it's a very accurate uh, depiction of the terrain. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, he just marked to his credit, and I know he's out there listening. He enjoys the show. He just finished the uh, the six day dragon dragons back race in uh, Wales. I, I followed that. That was impressive. Yeah. yeah, he came across. That was open tracking, courtesy of James and Lisa Thurlow. Um, so I can't imagine running across that track. You you would probably just skip right across it. I'd be in traction in about a day and a half. No, I did. I did my long. Well, I did a training run with Mark. It was my longest run ever. I, I haven't done super long endurance runs. Um, I think my longest run before then had been like maybe twenty miles, and I went and did a, a forty miler with Mark in the mountains, and, and he is a machine. Um, and I just never experienced those feelings in my legs after 30 something miles. Um, so I would love to do the dragons back one day. That race looks incredible running across Wales. Yeah. And it, when I see the stage races, they seem so tempting. Like it's luxurious. You, sh- you, you go out there all day, enjoy this experience. And then at nighttime they have tents for you and food. Right. Um, yeah. There's a, there's a, a, a race called rats race, race across the sun. That's in Moab. That's every June. That's it's a it's a four or five day race. It has a marathon stage. It's always the last week of my work. It's 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 the it's the time I can never go and do it. But to your point, this this the multi day stage running races sound like a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, great stuff, great stuff. So Jesse, I'm, I'm going to let you go. Um, I, you've been more than generous with your time. Any any anything closing on the way out you want to say to the adventure racing world? No, but thank you for having me. Thank you for what you do. 